Welcome to the MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. In this episode, Asan Coleman, Head of Emerging Markets Research for EMEA, and Matt Fennessy, Head of Global Market Sales for Global Subsidiary Banking Asia, provide their insights on the overall commodities supercycle thesis, the prices of energy, metals, and agriculture in the context of the Russia-Ukraine war, and the outlook for the quarter and the year ahead. The following podcast is for information purposes only. It is intended for professional investors and eligible counterparties and not for retail clients. Any content should not be regarded as an offer to conduct investment businesses or investment recommendations. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. We're recording this podcast as a follow-up to the webinar that was hosted on the 21st of April. If you are interested in the full version of that webinar, please reach out to your MUFG sales reps. There is a presentation that goes along with it. But today, Esan and myself are going to cover off the high-level topics from that webinar. So let's jump right in. And Esan, why don't we start with an overall view on commodities and what your thesis is and why we are so structurally bullish when it comes to the commodities cycle? Sure, Matt. Thanks very much. So I guess our main message uh, is that global commodity markets are facing really what we call an extreme molecule crisis with shortages across not just in energy, but also in metals and agriculture. And this is really centered on the structural supply scarcity that's been mirroring a complex that predates COVID. And it really has zero to do with the geopolitics of today. And in terms of the war, what we're really witnessing is that the conflict is set to structurally alter the contours of policymaking and corporate strategy in a way that we think is going to shape the global commodities landscape for really decades. Indeed, the permanency of some of these pivots with Europe unwinding years of energy liberalisation is accelerating now carbon-intensive investments alongside large-scale green capex. In addition to military enlargements, these will require a long time to implement and generate significant commodities demand, which really reinforces our views of a commodity supercycle this decade. So just taking a step back and just honing in on Russia, while the world has really been rapidly decoupling from Russian financial markets, it's going to take a long, longer, many more months to decouple from Russia in terms of physical commodity markets. Indeed, there are mounting signs that Russia's exports are set to collapse. We have tender offers for Russian commodities remaining bidless. Freight rates are extremely expensive. The financial capacity in terms of the conflict insurance and shipping premium market, it remains extremely limited. And meanwhile, granted, yes, Russia does have a very impressive fleet with a host of VLCCs, but by and large, it can really not stop the sheer velocity of what we're talking about in terms of the loss of commodity exports. On top of that, we have, of course, the lingering apprehension surrounding the willingness of purchases to continue buying Russian commodities given the sheer reputational repercussions and simply the more obligations to stay clear of Russian exports. Now, moving away from Russia, I guess honing in on our broader bullish conviction in terms of our commodities and one commonality across the commodities complex is what we call the simultaneous blend of triple deficits, i.e. a deficit in inventories, the structural underinvestments that's been complex on, on top of the deficit in terms of the thinning spare capacity. So we want to make the case that these deficits really predate 
the pandemic and indeed predate the war. In fact, the seeds were sown all the way back in the great financial crisis of 2008-2009, where basically capital was redirected from what we call the old economy towards the new economy. So essentially, you're taking away from your Exxons and your big aluminium producers and you're giving it to your Netflixes and your Apples of the world. And as a result, what you're essentially doing, you're starving the old economy of the critical capital-intensive energy sources it needs in terms of the capital base to grow and so you have the problems you have today in terms of the supply side failing to meet the robust huge pent-up consumption of the vaccine-led recovery seeing in today's market and this deficit is really what's causing the significant upsurge in commodity prices now moving away from that I think one of the burning questions we had in terms of investors uh, of recent weeks is what do you do in the context of you know a hiking cycle, in the, especially in the context of a Fed. Now we've been looking at this in quite a lot of detail, and ever since the Fed has really been uh, sort of you know hiking uh, aggressively, when we look all the way back, say for example in the last fifty years, all the way back to nineteen seventy two, when we look at individual asset performance, commodities really have stand out in terms of their outperformance. And one of the reasons is that physical markets are essentially volumetric markets. Commodities are volumetric markets. Whereas, you know, if you want to determine if you're bullish or not, you just simply look at volume, you know, the demand and supply. And if demand, of course, is above supply, then, then then by definition, you should be bullish, which is exactly what's happening now. There's no dollars that enters the equation. There's no growth rates. So essentially, physical commodity markets, they're driven by volume. Flip side, you have financial markets. This is your equities, your bonds, your credit, you name it. These are simply driven by dollars. And however much dollars you pump in is essentially how much bullish you are or not. And essentially, there's no volumes that enters the markets. And critically, our main message here is that normally when the Fed hikes, it's very late cycle. It is to temper inflation. It is to temper an overheating economy. And that's exactly the period when commodities demand is above supply, which is exactly what's happening right now. And ultimately, commodities, we believe, are the best hedge in terms of when the Fed hikes. Now, trying to bring it all together in terms of our anchor analysis of why we think we're really only in the first innings of a commodity soup cycle this decade. Yes, granted, it might not be linear in fashion in terms of the upward movement, but certainly we believe that it's going to be a continuing upward movement in terms of spikes. Now, a number of factors, if I may. So first, of course, unlike the 1970s, which witnessed commodities rise by no more than 850%, it was really only limited to oil and it was a seller's boycott. Today, we have a shock that involves every single commodity. It involves energy, it involves metals, it involves agriculture. And this is a buyer's boycott. And by delineation, we believe that it's more sticky and it's much more permanent given the physical decoupling that's going to take much longer to play out. Of course, ever since COVID has created a crisis of inequalities, we believe that policies have shifted from macro stability pre-COVID to social needs post-COVID. And this matters importantly, as ultimately for commodities, it's the lower income groups that really control the volume when we're talking about in terms of commodity markets. And that what's really at the core of what we believe is going to drive the structural rise on the demand side of the equation. One final point, our narrative is, is on, the, on the fact that, yes, we all want the build out of green infrastructure, but for that to happen, we believe that commodity prices need to overshoot to the upside to create the incentives for renewable investments to rise, which really is at the heart of the decarbonization paradox. That is, you know, your green metals, such as your aluminium, etc., they are the most carbon intensive to produce. And hence what you're doing, you're reducing your supply, but, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, demand continues to increase and hence you cause the mismatch. And of course, the prices continue to rise to the upside.
So, Esan, thank you for that overview there. I guess the obvious question is what could stop this super cycle? What if you're wrong? What would be the counter argument? Yeah, sure, Matt. The, the picture we've painted in terms of uh, our, our commodities outlook is one of a, a, a mismatch between a significant upsurge in demand, whereas you have very limited supply. How do you fix that? We need a lot more investment to break the super cycle. And that is essentially, you know, we've starved the economy ever since uh, 2008, 2009, with the forces of ESG mandates that has curbed the investment that has, that's required uh, to, to meet the demand today. And so, you know, when we look back at the 1970s super cycle, same story in the 2000s era, what ended that super cycle? Again, it was investment. And so what we believe right now is going to end the super cycle is a lot more investment. The one challenge we have, Matt, this time around relative to the past is that the financing is simply just not there for the type of scale of investment that's required. You know, all companies, for example, they're focusing on returning cash to shareholders. They're focusing on leveraging, rebuilding their balance sheet. They're incurring huge losses. Um, and for that reason, they're just simply not willing uh, to invest the huge amounts that are required. Same story for banks, which are crucial to CapEx. They're being constrained in extending, of course, financing thanks to regulatory requirements as well as in terms of ESG mandates. So, Matt, essentially the investment gap is not just only in energy. Indeed, it's also present in, in metals and in the agri-space. Just one example, China. A decade ago, the country was overproducing significantly raw materials such as iron ore and steel, and they just simply dumped it, the, the excess in foreign markets. Now it's essentially cutting production as part of his campaign for carbon neutrality. And, and for that reason, you're curbing your supply and you're just not tackling your demand. 60, 60% of aluminium comes from China. They continue to cap new smelting because of its very fat carbon footprint. Of course, it's the green thing to do. But unfortunately, what that does is cause a mismatch in the market because of the lack of investment needed. And hence the reason why you get a significant surge, not just in aluminium, but certainly across the green metal space. So just to uh, sum it up, Matt, it's investment. And without real significant amounts of investment, we're just going to get this mismatch throughout this decade. Thanks, Esan. That's, that's a good summary. Why don't we, pardon the pun, drill into some subgroups uh, when it comes to the commodities and, and what your views are on those subgroups? So first on energy, where our conviction is resolutely bullish. On oil, we believe the backdrop cannot be more positive in the second quarter. And the third quarter is we believe when the price-induced demand destruction, which is really the only the practical mechanism available at the moment in a world devoid of inventory buffers and supply elasticity, really kicks in to induce the necessary reduction in consumption with a corresponding Brent price above $140 per barrel. On gas, we have a double spike in our profile first in the second quarter as the vacuum surrounding the latest standoff of Russia still wanting to be paid in rubles for its gas exports to Europe, causing a wedge in prices to the upside. For gasoline, given the US administration's political priority of getting down gasoline prices, we believe that some success is likely to come by the end of the year, given our oil profile collapsing going into the end of the year, ahead of the midterms in November. Next on base metals, and as with energy, we are firmly bullish on the subgroup. Now the underlying playbook predates the war, as the role of metals in the decarbonization process is vital and critically for us unprepared. That is, greening the economy will support a surge in base metals demand, but sticky inadequate supply widens the deficits. So on copper, the market remains fundamentally tight with stockpiles at the current juncture 
at the lowest level for this time of the year since 2005. For aluminium, we remain resolutely bullish on growing supply risk related to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, worsening an already a present path to, to scarcity with consumption far outstripping supply and stockpiles increasingly depleted. For zinc, similar to the rest of the base metals complex, we expect zinc prices to rally on market tightness. And finally, for nickel, prices are slowly returning to fundamentals, but the remarkable episode of the short squeeze last month really highlights the peculiar challenges base metal markets are facing in that with significant supply increasing margin calls, positions have been abruptly covered in an environment of falling liquidity. With this, turning on to precious metals, we are neutral to bullish on subgroups. So for gold, we see the metal facing the most bullish demand backdrop in 10 years as investment demand, central bank demand, and consumer demand appear set to be simultaneously thriving. And the last time these three forces came together in 2010, 2011, gold in fact rallied by more than 70%. For platinum group metals, so Russia is a titan on producing platinum and palladium. So encouragingly, both of these important metals that are feedstocks to items such as automotive and pharmaceuticals are in fact transported by air and thus less uh, affected by seaborne disruptions. Turning to bulk commodities, so that's or uh, coal and, and iron ore, we are holding a neutral to bullish buyer. So in terms of coal, a supply crunch with risks with a withdrawal of Russian coal imports from the EU, inducing a growing demand for ex-Russia exports and aggregating the global supply imbalance, which is likely to keep coal prices supportive. Meanwhile, for iron ore, we're less bullish. And in fact, whilst it has been a very good first few months, of 2022 for iron ore driven by the Ukraine war, whether related logistical disruptions in Australia as well as in, as, as well in Brazil, there are several idiosyncratic factors that are likely to lead to a moderation in prices. Very finally on the subgroup where we look for in terms of agri-space, we are resolutely bullish, though we do mention that the most bullishness we, we see are in grains that soybean, wheat and corn, but less so on soft stats, cotton, coffee and sugar. So you mentioned bulk commodities and coal there and the huge rise that we've seen in the, in the price of coal. How do you see that playing out with Europe seeking to replace its Russian coal imports and what's the role of China here? Matt, these are great questions. Uh, so just to put this in the context, I guess we, it's, it's a numbers game in terms of Europe. We are talking about 50 metric tons of displaced Russian thermal coal that Europe needs to Basically, it's, it's going to end by August, and it, so you know we're talking about sixty percent of its total imports, and that's a large quantum that it needs to find from elsewhere. And you know you're in a kind of a dilemma about where is this going to come from. And we've done a bit of the homework, and we think three key players stand out: that's Russia, that that's the U.S., it's Colombia, and it's uh, South Africa. But when we do the math, the cumulative sum of these three countries simply can't make up the fifty metric tons. Yes, some of it will probably come. A lot of it actually will come from the U.S. But net net, we think that there's going to be a you know a significantly tighter seaborne market uh, ahead, with ultimately some demand destruction needing to take place to actually manage that fifty metric tons of loss from 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 Russia. Now you mentioned China, Matt. So despite, of course, the laser focus on Europe, China is a big deal when it comes to coal, and 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 China's government, you know, has been looking to boost coal mine supply further with the NDRC having ordered coal-producing companies to increase capacity by more than 300 metric tons per year, of which 50% has to come from reopening previous suspended projects. The trouble here is that most of this increased supply from China 
is probably going to stay in China. And so unfortunately, there isn't much supply that China can offer places like Europe and elsewhere in terms of this shortage that we believe will happen. So those are the main messages, Matt. So why don't we wrap things up with uh, your outlook and views for the trajectory going forward? Sure, Matt. So I guess in terms of the conversation, there's three main sort of areas I would like to just uh, sort of highlight when it comes to the outlook. So first, we kind of sort of you know, break down the journey of how commodities have taken place ever since the pandemic first struck back in March 2020. So what we call the recovery phase between April 2020 to, say, August 2021, that sort of you know, a year and two, three months period. And that's when you have surplus inventories, it weighed on prices, it drove up your demand, it drove down your supply, and the markets kind of began to rebalance inventories. The second phase is what we call the supply scarcity phase. We think we're still in that phase, which is kind of from that September 2021, and we think it's going to go all the way up until summer this year. And this is where you have inventories fallen below the equilibrium level. Markets are having to price scarcity, a shortage of, of, of supply, basically. Hence the reason why you have a significant surge to the upside. Now, the third phase is where we think is going to get a lot more traction come the summer and what we call the holding phase. And we think therein, essentially, inventories will fall to absolute record levels. You have very little inventories left across the energy metals and agri space. What we'll essentially start seeing, what we believe is distortions in traditional market behavior. That is the expectations of future supply falling further. And the rational next step essentially for countries to basically take matters into their own hands, securing tomorrow's supply themselves by holding today. In other words, for us, holding is another way that inflation expectations become unanchored in the physical world. And at the heart of this is the need for countries to establish resiliency in their supply chains, whether it's in response to the war, climate change, geopolitical risk, you name it, they need to secure that supply. And across the commodities complex, we think that we're already starting to see this holding take place. For example, say in, in the agri space, US officials have warned that holding of supplies of global grains, this could be really calamitous for the global economy. Even for example, of course, in the energy space, we're having, because of the depleted inventories and the structural underinvestments taking place, this is causing inventory hoarding. Same story in gas, for example, Germany and Austria, they're taking the first steps towards hoarding. They've triggered an early warning phase designed to prepare for essentially a shortage of uh, Russian gas. So with this, we think that this hoarding behavior, Matt, is the basis of the reasons why we're so bullish on, on the back end of the trade, where you have very limited spare capacity and limited inventories, you are going to be forcing precautionary inventory building. And even in the, for example, the metal space where hoarding is less susceptible because simply because you know, the front loaded nature of physical contracts, we think even those will start seeing more signs where you have more longer contracts to secure the supply in the face of tighter inventories and, and the scarce outlook. So main message, Matt, is that we are very bullish on, on commodities because of the broader anchoring of supply scarcity at the current junction and moving towards hoarding. In terms of numbers, so the commodities complex on, on average grew by 27% last year. We have it slightly going up to about 28% this year. But of course, relative to the other asset classes, we are talking about significant outperformance this year with the commodities complex. But with all this bullishness that you've uh, discussed, in your thesis for commodities, what could go wrong? Or in other words, what could drive the rebalancing in the market? Yeah, sure. Great question, Matt. So I guess barring a breakthrough in, in peace negotiations, I guess a collapse in this Russian commodity exports, I think ultimately requires prices for us to rally so sharply so you get a reduction in consumption. So just basically put differently in our view, 
Demand destruction, those two keywords, is the ultimate near-term balancing mechanism large enough, really in a world that we have devoid of inventory buffers and you have supply elasticity. Now, this demand destruction, yes, of course, it won't be uniform across countries. It will vary considerably. And of course, it's conditional on the consumption basket. It's conditional on the on price controls and exchange rate flexibility and so on. But I think what's clear for us is that we're simply just not at maximum pain yet. And we believe that commodities... For example, oil prices, gas prices, you name it. They need to continue going up to a level where consumers like ourselves, as well as producers of some of these raw materials, will start slowing down production and ultimately demand destruction, what we think is going to become the ultimate balancing mechanism in, in, in a market that's devoid of inventories. All right. Thanks, Esan. I want to thank everyone for, for joining this podcast. And I remind you to reach out to your MUFG sales reps for any further information. But we'll leave it there for today. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the MUFG APEC Insights podcast. This episode is available on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. Rate, review, and subscribe, and reach out to an MUFG sales representative for business inquiries.